right if y'all will find Matthew chapter 13 in your Bible so here we are again in Matthew 13 um, where it's in Matthew 13 Jesus records a whole or Matthew records a whole series of parables uh, that Jesus told, six of them, in fact. And we've already looked at a number of the parables in this chapter. Uh, we looked at the purpose of the parables found here, the parable of the sower and its explanation. The last couple of weeks we've done like four, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, as well as uh, the mustard seed and the leaven. I, and I think uh, after tonight we're just going to have one more, uh, potentially one more, parable in this chapter to look at. But tonight we're going to look at the one of the other more prominent parables in it, which is the parable of the weeds. As Garrett just prayed, the parable of the weeds, which, like the parable of the sower, is, um, is, is one that Jesus himself gave the explanation to, or for, um, when the disciples asked for it. I'll go ahead and say, I don't know if any of you read it ahead of time, or if I forgot to even say that's the one we're going to. I was kind of shocked when Gary was like, we're going to be studying the parable of the weeds. I'm like, I don't think I told anybody. I don't know how you knew, you little prophet. Um, but uh, if you read it ahead of time or you're familiar with it, you may know. It's, it's, a, it's sort of both a difficult parable to, hit, to hear or to read as well as a deeply encouraging one. It's, it's got both. Um, Jesus is going to have some very harsh but very true Things to say to those who um, may claim some sort of connection to him, but whose hearts he knows are far from him. And, and also some very encouraging things to say to those who love Christ, desire to follow him, uh, albeit imperfectly. Marked out by hearts of repentance. I want you to hear that very clearly because it's going to come up again. True followers are marked out by hearts of repentance and of desire for faithfulness and obedience. We've seen that in earlier parables. We're going to read the parable and its explanation, and, uh, and then, and because Jesus was so kind to explain it for us, we're going to give our closest attention to that explanation. We're going to, we'll read it in the parable too, but uh, give a lot of attention to his explanation. Um, right, so let's read it, and uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 24, read through verse 30, then we'll skip down to verse 36. And read through verse 43. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. It's got to sound familiar to you at this point. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers 
Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Down in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the seed, the good seed, is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, what we just read is your holy and inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, I ask, once again, that you would give us eyes to see the truth in these words, and would you give us minds to understand what the Lord Jesus is saying, even to understand his explanation, which is so mercifully clear to us. Um, Would you give us hearts to embrace and believe the truth that you tell us here? Would you give us wills to obey and and heed whatever it is that you admonish us to do individually? And collectively, and Lord, would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. As Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. So give us those ears, we ask. Give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there are several things here that I want us to see. Um, Being a somewhat, refreshingly in my book as a teacher, a longer parable than we've had the last couple of weeks. Um, There... There's simply more detail given in these parables uh, to learn from. Um, So if you're if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see, and I hope you're astonished with my alliteration. I'm going to say it. I was quite proud of it. Uh, So first, we're going to note the sovereign sower. The sovereign sower. That's amazing, right? It gets better. Uh, so Jesus here is like using, again, an agricultural metaphor, that of sowing seed. So we'll think about the sovereign sower first. Second, we're going to notice Satan's sowing. Ooh. Oh, it, it keeps going. Uh, so he's going to, it's a good reminder that Satan is active in the world, opposing, opposing the kingdom of God, opposing the church. Third, Jesus is going to describe what I'm calling a surprising sifting. A surprising sifting at the end of the age. Uh, I just, as fun as that is, it was one of the more difficult aspects of the parable, this and the next point. Which, fourthly, is Jesus' description of a sobering sentence for the wicked. A sobering, I've never had such applause for my points. Judge, judgment, there's got one more. 
the passage is going to end with a brief description of what must be a surreal salvation. Yes. Let's pray. No, I'm just, uh, um, yeah, I say surreal just because that's, that's the first word that came to my mind when I think about the, the description Jesus gives of it. So, all right. That's what we're going to see. So let's dive into it. Think first about the sovereign sower. So I think this is a point that uh, I, I made a couple of weeks ago, I think. It may have been more than a couple of weeks ago. Um, it may have been when we talked about the parable of the sower, but it's worth seeing again tonight. Jesus begins this parable in a very familiar way, um, one that we've seen just repeatedly in recent weeks, um, with a comparison statement. He says in verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, that's, that's, the, that's the very nature of what Parables are. They're comparison stories, comparison of normal things with heavenly things. Um, uh, it may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And again, Jesus is using these very ordinary but profound stories, using images that are so simple to teach us a comparison of what the kingdom of Christ is like. And, and here it's, again, a man sowing seed in his field. We have come across that imagery so many times. We've seen it a couple times in this chapter, this very chapter, certainly with the parable of the sower, we saw that one. Remember, we just saw it last week in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Um, the mustard seed was a man scattering the mustard seed to sow the, sow the seed into the ground. Even the, it's not seed, but in the parable of the leaven, the woman was putting the leaven into the flower. That's the same idea. Um, in, in the, yeah, so... Um, in both of those instances that we've seen already, and we should do it again, um, we rightly emphasized our role in the expansion of Christ's kingdom on earth. Our role in that. Um, our, our role expressed in, in, in faithfulness to bear witness to the gospel, to bear witness to Christ, to share the gospel. Um, and that's not anything new, but it's something we should still always keep you know, if you're like me, um, as I go throughout my day, consciously bearing witness to Christ is the easiest thing to, to just neglect. And so I have to keep that in front of my mind constantly, uh, that, that as I go about my day, I, I need to be looking for opportunities to bear witness to Christ. Um, this is, and, 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 you know, Jesus at the very end of this gospel Matthew is going to give a great commission to his 11 disciples. You know, he tells the 11 sitting there in front of him to make disciples as, as they're going, baptizing them and teaching those disciples to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. Well, if we're to teach those disciples everything that Jesus commanded, the most recent command he just gave is to make disciples, right? And so that's how the, that's how the great commission comes down to us. It's in the spiritual DNA of a follower of Christ to make disciples. And, and, and uh, those are the last words of Jesus before he goes, ascends back to the Father in the, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1. Um, he told the gathered disciples they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We bear the name of Christ everywhere we go. I need you to, I need you to um, think about that. We bear the name of Christ with us everywhere we go and our words and our actions 
to the people around us are going to be a witness to him whether we want it to be or not. It's either going to be a faithful one or a poor one, right? But it's, it's undeniably the repeated testimony of the New Testament that we have the seed of the gospel, and, I, and our job as his followers is to sow that seed widely, to switch metaphors, to be fishers of men. But the thing we notice in this parable right here of the weeds tonight, particularly in Jesus' explanation of it, is that there's another layer to it. There is another layer to it. Um, uh, when Jesus explains the point of the man sowing the seed in his field, he says in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is who? The son of man. That's his own. That, by the way, son of man is Jesus' favorite title to give to himself, even more than son of God, son of man. Um, now, there, when he says the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, there's a couple of ways that you could take that, um, in my view. On the one hand, the most obvious way that you could understand Jesus saying that he himself is the one sowing the good seed is that is the simple and obvious fact that he's the one telling these parables. Like, and, and he, in his earthly ministry, was the one traveling with his disciples and proclaiming the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Proclaiming, you know, proclaiming telling the Jews, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, in that way, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, went from place to place to place for three years bearing witness to himself and bearing witness to the gospel that he was bringing to pass. In, in many places, he was well-received. He was not in every place in his hometown. He was not well-received. That's the easiest and most obvious way to understand what Jesus means when he says the Son of Man is the one who's sowing the good seed. I don't think biblically, though, that's the only way we can understand that or that the, the Bible even leads us necessarily to think that, that that's the only thing it means. For time's sake, let me just give you one example about uh, the other aspect to this. How, and think about the book of Acts. How does the book of Acts begin? Uh, Acts 1.1. In my first book, Theophilus, um, this is Luke, the gospel writer, writing this. In my first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That would be referring to Luke's gospel. He was in the gospel. He's recording what Jesus began to do and to teach. Very clearly showing you that in Luke's mind, now that he's about to write Acts, what's he going to do? He's gonna, he, he doesn't believe that Jesus finished it. He's, this, is, this book is going to be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. If that was about what he began to do, this is what he, about what he continued to do. And how is Jesus going to continue to do anything at the right hand of the Father? Through his Holy Spirit and through his Spirit-empowered disciples. And that shows up in two different ways in the book of Acts. One, the Holy Spirit would fall on Peter, like, uh, people like Peter, like, the other, uh, like other people. He would fall on them to give them boldness to continue speaking the gospel even despite threats, even despite fears. And so as they would go out and going in the boldness, 
that Jesus Christ, through His Spirit, instilled in them, it meant that He Himself was going with them as they went. His presence, by His Spirit, in the form of boldness, was going with them as they would bear witness. And as they sowed seed, He was sowing seed with them. He's with them as they sow seed. So what that just tells you today, not, he hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It tells you that when you go to bear witness to Christ, when you go share the gospel with someone, you can be sure that the Lord Jesus Christ is with you, speaking in you and with you and through you. Because you, as, you, as you sow the seed in your own personal life, he is sowing it through you, through the ability that, the, that he sovereignly gives you to do so. That's on the front end of your sharing. As you go out, He's going with you to sow that seed through you. But the other way that it shows up, um, the other way the Lord sowing the good seed shows up in the book of Acts is not just on the front end of your sharing, but also on the back end of the listeners receiving. The listeners receiving. Um, on the soil that the seed is sown in. Just one example here. In Acts chapter 16. Um, the Apostle Paul and his companions went down by a riverside where there were some people praying. Among them was a seller of purple cloth named Lydia. And verse 14 tells us, of Acts chapter 16, verse 14 says that as Peter was sharing with them, verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. In other words, the Lord opened her heart in repentance and faith because the next thing that happens to her in that chapter is she gets baptized, right? Um, and, 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 and so um, as Jesus, by his Spirit, led Paul to her and empowered him to speak to her, he also opened her heart on the back end as she listened, opened her heart to receive that message to repent and believe. And notice carefully in this parable of the weeds how in the parable in verse 24, it says the farmer sowed the seed in his field. His field. And Jesus' explanation tells us that the field represents the world. So the world that what? Belongs to him over which he is sovereign. So when in the parable Jesus says that he is the one sowing the good seed, it reminds you that he is a sovereign sower. He is the one who is with you to help you share, even when you're scared or nervous or you don't know what to say. And he's also sovereign over the hearts of those who hear the message. You can even screw the message up sometimes. And the Holy Spirit still works in the heart of someone who, who is listening. And so you, you are not to blame when someone rejects Christ any more than you are to be praised when someone accepts Him. He's a sovereign sower. We're just vessels through which the Lord does His good work. And what a privilege. We need to remind ourselves of that. But this parable also makes clear that the Lord through us isn't the only sower. Satan is sowing his own seed in the world. So think with me quickly about Satan's sowing. In the parable, Jesus says in verse 25 that when the farmer went to sleep, uh, an enemy came and sowed weeds in the field. Jesus explains in verse 38 in his explanation that the weeds are the sons of the evil one. 
and in verse 39, that it's the enemy who sowed them, and that enemy is the devil. We don't have a lot of time to, to spend here, uh, but Jesus very clearly does this in real life, says this in real life uh, in other places, like in John 8. John 8's a fascinating chapter. John 8, it, uh, early or midway through John 8, it says there were some Jews who believed on him. Man, um, Jesus saw through that because later on in that same chapter, Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him that he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your desire is to do your father's will. Like, they were of their father, the devil. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world, little g God, I take that to be the evil one, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Or think about this passage, 2 Timothy 2, verses 25 and 26. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. Paul tells Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness. Why? Why correct your opponents with gentleness, Paul? God may perhaps, listen to this, God may perhaps grant them repentance. He's a sovereign sower. He may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses, Paul says, and escape what? Escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is a constant theme in the New Testament. Satan is active in the world. We saw that very clearly, for those of you who were here last year, when we studied through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, uh, you, may, you may remember that a two uh, a prominent thing in the book of Revelation are these two beasts, the beast that arises out of the land and a beast that arises out of the sea. Those are, those are depicted as two tools at Satan's disposal to use in the world. And, and, and the, the one beast represented oppressive governments that keep people from trusting Christ through their oppression, through the fear that they instill, the violence that they inflict. But the other, the other beast represented everything in the world that lures people away from the gospel through pleasure, through deceptive philosophies, through uh, deceptive religions, through prosperity and comfort. There are two kingdoms at war, in other words. There's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And Jesus knows that the kingdom of darkness, he's not going to win in the end, as this parable is going to absolutely make clear, but it nevertheless does battle into that final day. Satan is active in the world, doing his best to blind minds, to harden hearts, to influence wills. And we're going to see one of the most deceptive ways that he does it in the third point that we come to, which is the surprising sifting at the end of the age. And I, and I want to explain carefully why I called it that. To see it most clearly, let's start at the end. Jesus says at the end of the parable that both wheat and weeds will grow up together. And then at the harvest time, the wheat and the weeds will be uh, separated and bundled together and the weeds will be burned. And in his explanation, Jesus says in verse 41 that at the end of the age, he says in verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. At the start of the judgment, that's the sifting. It's the sifting. Weed and wheat will be separated. They will be sifted and separated, right? But why do I say a surprising sifting? 
Why surprising sifting? Who is surprised? I think it's pretty clear in this parable that the ones surprised are the ones who are sifted out of the kingdom. And I want to be especially careful about how I explain this because I don't believe that Jesus told this to cause angst among His people. All right? Yes, another, another passage similar to this that causes people, even true believers, angst is Matthew 7, 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that has stricken fear in many believers. But if you look carefully at what Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says there that, that, that uh, he says, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? What's missing there? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is missing in that list. Repentance and faith are the mark of a true believer. That's, and is that just because I want that to be the case? No, that's what we've already seen in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Which man went down to his house justified? Not the Pharisee who basically said, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I, I'm glad I'm not like this. I'm glad I'm not like that. The one who went home justified was the one who could not even lift his eyes to heaven. He was so heavy with repentance, asking for the Lord's atonement for his sin. That's the one who went home justified. And if you look again at the parable of the weeds, notice how in the telling of the parable, notice how everyone could easily spot which ones were the weeds. And which ones were the wheat? It says in verses 27 and 28, And the servants of the masters of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? They could just look at the field and say, Something's wrong. How then does it have weeds? He said, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to them, Then do you want us to go and gather them? They could easily spot them. They could go right to them and gather them if he had said to do so. Which means it would be no surprise to the, pe- the true people of God at the end of the age. Like there are people, maybe, maybe just the longer you live, you'll just notice it more. Maybe if you guys could just spend, I don't know, a week or two as a pastor of a church, you might, you might notice there are unbelievers in the church. There are. There are unbelievers in the church. And uh, they don't always make for good days for pastors. I'm just saying, not, not, not you guys. I'm saying in pastime. But uh, all that to say, as a pastor, I, it was pretty clear to me who, who I, I, I'm not even sure if they're born again because of the way they act. Because it's, it's just really obvious. It's so, it's so obvious in whom a person is, is the Spirit of God. And the way they talk and the way they confess and the way they, the way they are, are humble, the way that even if they're prideful one minute, they don't stay that way, right? The Holy Spirit brings them to repentance. There are people, you know, the ones who are surprised are not the true believers who are, who are repentant and believing. It, those who are surprised will be those who put their confidence in the wrong thing. 
Uh, they've never understood the gospel. And Satan is very happy for them to believe that they're fine. But true believers know the mark of true believers. It's repentance and faith. So while that is a surprising sifting coming for some, there's peace for those who walk in repentance and faith. And as we near the conclusion of this parable, it concludes with two ends, one for the wheat, one for the weeds. And so first he mentions the sobering sentence that will be handed down to unbelievers. In the parable, the weeds are gathered first, they're bundled, and they're cast into the fire to be burned. And in his explanation, Jesus says in verses 41 and 42, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a sobering sentence. Sobering not only because there will be torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth like he says, but also because Scripture elsewhere tells us that will be not only true, it will be eternal. It'll be everlasting. That's what we're told in the last chapter of Isaiah, the last two chapters of Isaiah, as well as in the New Testament. And let me just say a quick word about that before we come to the final point, because there's really not a whole lot to elaborate on with this final judgment. It is what it is. So I'll just chase a slight rabbit trail for just a minute on this, on this point. Some people wonder, and I've been asked, why... Why must hell be endless? Why must hell be everlasting? Um, does, does somebody's sin on earth actually merit everlasting punishment? Maybe they'll say, well, okay, for Hitler, you know, everlasting punishment. But, like, not everybody's Hitler. What about somebody who's just tried to, be, tried to be good? You know, everlasting punishment? Why, why must it be endless? Um, some of you may have heard me reply to this question, but in a very real way, we have a sense in our own minds, in our own intuitions, uh, of why this must be and why it isn't um, unjust of God. We have, it, we have examples of it built into our own legal system. Uh, if, if, if somebody um, got, this is a silly example, but, I think it makes the point. If somebody got a pistol made out of chocolate, all right, dark chocolate pistol, and ran up to you and said, bang, 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 pointed it at you and said, bang, 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 you would think that's a weirdo, and I don't ever want to be around them again. That's about it. If that same person with that same dark chocolate pistol hopped the fence at the White House, ran up to the President of the United States and pointed at him and said, bang, 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 that guy's going to prison for a while. To prison for a while. And rightly so. Why the disparity in the consequences for the same action? Essentially, because of the status of the person on the receiving end. And in the same way, offense against an infinite God merits an infinite consequence. It's just like repentance and faith on the opposite end. Repentance and faith in that infinite God brings with it an eternal blessing on the other end. One that I have called a surreal salvation. And we'll close with this. Jesus says in the parable simply, gather the wheat into my barn. It doesn't seem very surreal. It seems quite ordinary. 
But listen again to the language he uses of the meaning of that in his explanation in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. They will shine like the sun. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like, but I have to believe it will be a surreal experience in a most wonderful way. And not only that, but combined with what he's just said a couple of verses earlier, that out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers will be gone. All causes of sin. Nothing in that place on that day will be a cause to sin. Nothing inside me, nothing outside me. And no lawbreakers. It's not just, that's amazing because I am for show a lawbreaker. And yet I'll be there. Can you, can you imagine? Maybe, maybe on that day, I have to just, I'd, I'd have to imagine this kind of stuff. But I mean, maybe on that day, in real time, we will see Jesus glorified. Jesus, we will see him face to face. And once we do that, then it will just, everything else will just make sense. It'll just feel normal. Maybe it'll just feel normal that no causes to sin. No, you know, it's just shining like the sun. And that just seems normal in that moment because I've seen Jesus. Maybe that's the case. But the only vantage point that I have right now, which is my own sinful and weak heart and mind, one that is just drowning in causes to sin and drowning in lawbreakers in my own heart and around me, we're just a bunch of them, like trying from this vantage point to imagine that is just surreal. It's just surreal. And in the most wonderful way, what a salvation. Jesus finished. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful and challenging word. Lord, thank you for uh, this wonderful salvation. I pray, Lord, if there are some here tonight who are putting their confidence in the wrong thing, maybe they're putting their confidence in their church membership back home. Maybe they're putting their confidence in their parents are believers. Maybe they're putting their confidence in that their grandparents was we're believers. My grandfather was a preacher. I, whatever it is, I'm a pretty good person. Whatever it is, if somebody here in this room is putting their confidence in the wrong thing and, and has not yet seen clearly that what makes a person right with God, able to go down to their house justified, is repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that if, if, if there's somebody here that needs to repent and believe for the first time tonight, Lord, would you give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a friend to talk to, me even. Lord, uh, we want to 
rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And thank you for parables like this that help us to do that. And I give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.